And here's what I worry about in the midst of COVID, right? Where we're trying to cut costs, we're trying to do all kinds of things that, you know, we we might actually lose sight of the, you know, the the the, the magic in the middle. And I've always said to schools, you know, the magic is not about how much money you have. It's about the culture. It's about what you value. It's about what you measure. Hello, and welcome to Ingenious You, the podcast where we talk about higher education, innovative practice, and leading edge thinking. Your host is Dr. Melissa Morris Olson. Higher education is undergoing a transformation which we have not seen in our lifetime. Prior to the pandemic, higher education was already experiencing disruption, which has only accelerated in this current moment. Nearly all colleges and universities are scrambling to redefine their futures, and for many, their very survival is now in question. In each episode of Ingenious U, we will talk with leading-edge thinkers whose expertise and experience are at the forefront of this transformation. Our guests will include college and university leaders, faculty, innovators, and other professionals who are experimenting with new approaches and ways of thinking about higher education. Be sure to hit subscribe to Ingenious You wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on a single episode. And if you like what you hear, you can rate and review this podcast and share this with your friends and colleagues so they can join the conversation too. Ingenious You is a production of CELIP, the Center for Higher Education, Leadership, and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. To learn more about CELIP, visit our website at baypath.edu forward slash Chelep. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Ingenious You. I am so excited to have as our guest today, Brandon Busteed. Brandon is now president of Kaplan University Partners. He was formerly a partner at Gallup and executive director of education and workforce development. His career spans a wide range of important work in education as an educational entrepreneur, speaker, writer, and university trustee. Brandon's work integrates Gallup's research and science on talent, strengths, engagement, and well-being to improve student success teacher effectiveness, and educational outcomes. His mission is to create a national movement to measure the educational outcomes that matter most, to connect education to jobs and job creation, and promote a paradigm shift from knowledge mastery to emotional engagement in education. Wow, I love that mission, Brandon. So welcome. Welcome to our podcast today. Pleasure to be with you, Melissa. Looking forward to the conversation, and happy Friday to you. Yes, to you as well. Now, you have had an extraordinary career trajectory. I could have gone on and on and on, and I'm going to include your full bio in the notes for the show. Um, But one of the things that I didn't know about you is that you were a two-sport NCAA Division I athlete at Duke. Um, what, What were your sports? Well, it's a little bit of a trick. You know, the two-sport thing is technically correct, but it was cross-country and track. So oh. you kind of get double credit for doing the same thing, which is running around in short shorts. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's a great thing to have on one's uh, resume or CV, however, you know, however it's defined. So kudos for you. Do you still run 
Are you well, still I, I, I run very infrequently, but I'm still pretty active. This morning I was out on my road bike. I, that's a new, you know, a new hobby or sport I've taken up. And then um, as a result of, uh, of the coronavirus, I've decided to, to try to try to learn golf, which I've never oh. really done. So I'm now taking golf lessons. So, you know, I'm doing different stuff, but not, not really running much anymore. Oh, good for you. You know, golf is on my bucket list, but I keep putting it off because people tell me you have to be pretty patient with yourself to learn golf. <laughs> well, I'm learning that fast. That is exactly Are you right. That? All right. Well, yeah. well, we'll have to um, touch base in a year or two and see how we're both doing in that regard. So that sounds fair. So in 2018, you were named to your current position as president of Kaplan University Partners. So can you tell us about the work you're doing at Kaplan and what Kaplan's trying to achieve through this new division that you're heading up? Yeah, it's it really is super exciting. And obviously, I'm biased in saying that, but I, I just it's 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 you know, I left an amazing uh, role at Gallup uh you know, for this. And so obviously was was something that I thought had enormous potential. And, you know, in simple terms, Kaplan is is a is a global and highly diversified education company. People know it for test prep because that's the historical, you know, brand. You know, most folks in higher ed are aware of the transaction between the, you know, the the, the academic university, Kaplan, what was known as Kaplan University. Uh, which was acquired by Purdue and is now Purdue Global. So people have awareness of those things. But, you know, we uh, we have a global footprint. We recruit more international students uh, into Australian and UK and U.S. universities than any other organization. Uh, we have a, a massive global English language uh, training uh, division. And we do a lot of work in uh, professional education with uh, a couple hundred high value industry recognized credentials. So when you kind of think about that array, my role was really designed to, um, I'll use a higher ed example, be a multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary role across mm -hmm. all of the Kaplan divisions and businesses in the specific service of building major partnerships with U.S. universities. So I focus on partnerships with U.S. colleges and universities. All of those are anchored at the, at the president and senior cabinet level. And to give you an idea, it's much more of a qualitative uh, approach than a quantitative approach. We're, we're actually, through my lens at least, not looking to partner with hundreds of universities. We're trying to find really dynamic leadership teams that want to grow, adapt, right? You know, really innovate and bringing some of the uh, capabilities of, of Kaplan to the table and helping those partners do that. So as a, as a quick you know, example, we have about 35 major university partners around the globe uh, where collectively across those 35, we're, we're bringing a little over a billion dollars in annual tuition revenue to those institutions. So, you know, these are significant partnerships. We really invest deeply in them. And, and I look at it as an opportunity to really, um, you know, provide a transformative opportunity for colleges that are looking to diversify, you know, mission-driven revenue sources uh, and, and build the work readiness of their students. So those are really the two major themes of the work that we're helping institutions with. Boy, that is very exciting. And it, it ties in really well with the work you've been doing over the course of your, of your lifetime. But it also reflects where higher ed is going, right? In terms of becoming an increasingly global enterprise. Um, That's so, right. Yeah, so very, very foresighted or ahead of the curve on the part of, of Kaplan and how exciting for you to be uh, heading heading that up. 
Now you write a lot. Um, I see your name on a lot of in a lot of different places, um, in, including the Chronicle of Higher Ed, Huffington Post, Fast Company, um, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post. I could go on and on. And one of the pieces um, that you've written that has gotten a lot of press, I think you did for The Economist, called The Coming Relevance Renaissance in Higher Ed. Uh, can you tell our listeners what you mean by the relevance renaissance and how COVID has changed your thinking since you wrote this in any way, if it has? Um, sure. I, you know, I think the article's maybe, I don't know, six, six seven months old. It's not that old, uh, but it was pre, you know, pre-COVID. Um, and quite frankly, I mean, I'll start with the, the, the end in mind. Very little has changed in what I wrote in that article because of COVID. In fact, if anything, it has just put a a brighter focus on the things that I highlighted in that. And so, Melissa, with the article, you know, I was pulling on a lot of the insights that I was involved with uh, relative to the research at Gallup and, uh, you know, the, the big project that Gallup and Strata Education Network embarked upon with, you know, a massive survey of, of U.S. Uh, adults around their educational experiences. And essentially, you know, if you said, if you ask me, Brandon, what are you worried most about for U.S. higher ed? Put aside very briefly this incredibly, you know, stressful moment of a global pandemic. Obviously, that's a very real threat. But um, but the big the big issue is that there's very little confidence in the work readiness of college graduates. And you know, you might go, Brandon, that's your biggest issue. It absolutely is because when you say, what is the big value driver for Americans when they think about higher education? the number one reason why we value it is to get a good or better job. And now to be clear, that's not the only reason we value it. We value it for many reasons, right? But that by far is the number one reason. And so when you start to think about, you know, the rising cost of higher education, which is also a very real issue, I'd put it in second place just behind this, uh, this relevance question, they're related. Because of course, the more you invest in higher education, the more that student or parent, right, whoever's involved in the decision, starts to think very uh, in, in a very kind of specific fashion about the return on their investment, and they are thinking very much about these questions of okay, how much am I going to invest? How much debt might I go into? Uh, what type of expected return am I going to get in terms of earnings and the job that I might get as a result of this degree? And so when you when you step back, right, you look at these data, which I'm very worried about, that only about 13 um, percent of the U.S. population strongly agrees that college graduates are well prepared for success in the workplace. Only 11 percent of C-level executives uh, strongly agree to a similar statement. And even among college and university trustees, it's actually about 6% of trustees who strongly agree that colleges have a good understanding of the jobs that, uh, that, 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 that graduates are gonna head into, right? So there's this, I'll call it vote of no confidence in the work readiness of college graduates. And if we don't solve for that, right, that is gonna be the thing that erodes our trust in higher education the most, our, our belief in its value the most, and so, you know, you step back and say, OK, well, what's happened as a result of COVID? Well, it's just it's just that calculation has gotten, you know, even more challenging as as prospective students think about, OK, I'm going to go to college. What am I going to get out of it? I want to make sure I've got, you know, a really strong uh, work outcome. 
And so, you know, there's there's just a lot to say about that. But that's my point about the coming relevance renaissance is that we have to get to a place where higher ed has a very clear value proposition around that work readiness. And in, in look, it's not rock si rocket uh, science. You say, what what are the things that improve the work readiness and the job outcomes of graduates? It's not necessarily what they majored in. I mean, there's some variance there in terms of earnings. It's more about the experiences that they had or didn't have, a long-term project that took a semester or more to complete, a job or an internship where they were able to apply what they were learning in the classroom, right? Being able to graduate with both a degree and specific industry skills. These are not mutually exclusive, right? This is a both and. So that's our opportunity. Yep. Yep. No, you're talking about high impact practices in part. For and, sure. Yeah. And uh, um, that's and that's that's a part of the message that I think sometimes gets lost when this conversation happens, particularly on the campus level. And that that leads me to my next question, because I think uh, what you're advocating for and responding to these threats in the way that you advise requires um, a certain kind of leader and mindset, not to mention courage, because you've been a trustee. So you you know what the political yeah. dynamics are like on the typical college campus and the, um, the debate that sometimes goes on and on and on between the liberal arts versus the professional orientation and the purpose of education. And um, so, you know, from your perspective, what what kind of leadership do you think is required to really pull off the kind of change and new way of thinking, new way of of operating that you're advocating for? How do you how do you respond to the faculty if you're a leader um, in in terms of uh, the the approach that you're uh, talking about? Yeah, I'm glad you asked the question. You know, we we, we know leadership is important, but uh, you know, I you know, when it comes to the next phase for U.S. higher education, it's going to be one of the most critical differentiators between the institutions that succeed and those that flounder. Right. So, you know, someone always asks me, well, what kind of universities are you trying to work with? You know, big ones, public ones, private ones, prestigious ones. Right. Like the answer is none of the above. I'm looking to work with universities that have dynamic, visionary leadership teams. That obviously starts usually with the president, right? Is he or she a, you know, a very, very dynamic leader thinking about, you know, how to take the institution into the future, willing to adapt, right? Willing to grow, wanting to grow the institution in every way, right? Enrollment, mission, impact, that kind of thing. And then the other facets, of course, are the degree to which they have alignment with their board, right above them and their senior cabinet team alongside them. And so that's actually the biggest uh, piece of analysis that I do as we're thinking about the universities we partner with is that. And then if you can get to that place where you say, yep, we got a, a dynamic uh, uh, leadership team. Uh, they've got alignment with the board, uh, at least as much as you can possibly have, you know, that then creates the opportunity for success. And so you think about, you know, universities that have just skyrocketed in their you know success on any level you think about the southern new hampshire's the you know the arizona states of the world the purdue's you know there's 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 many that i can mention but those are ones that are usually in the news quite frequently you know those are institutions that have had dynamic leadership uh they're now building a culture of innovation 
within those institutions. So they, they, their innovation will survive uh, changes in leadership because they've, they've made it an intentional part of the culture there. And I'll just say one thing, Melissa, about this. The institutions that I've, that I've come upon that I've been most impressed with, they have, uh, they've made innovation a very intentional and purposeful thing. So I'll give you an example. Wake Forest University, one of our very big partners at Kaplan, uh, they have a, a vice president of innovation on the president's cabinet. His job is to look for the new opportunities on the horizon. They also have an innovation committee of their board of trustees, which is really unique. Both of those are unique. And I've had a lot of college presidents during this disruption say, well, you know, how do we how do we keep an eye towards the future while we're stuck in all the things we're having to deal with most immediately? And I think the answer to that is that, you know, you yourself, a president, right, or even a provost in a, in a senior leadership position may not have all the bandwidth to be thinking on the horizon because of what you're having to deal with right now, right here and now. Right. But if you carve out a position or somebody's role to be focused on that, right, where it's clear that, that somebody at the institution is, you know, is either entirely or largely involved in thinking about that, or you do something structurally, like suggest an innovation committee, your board, those are things that I think are highly effective steps that leaders can take to institutionalize this kind of work. Yep, yep. So you're talking about being very, very intentional, having somebody or some group that is charged with thinking about this on an ongoing basis. Um, so those are those are wonderful examples of how you actually can bake innovation into the culture so that it does become part of the way we that we do things over time um, because you're you're right I you know I, I can't uh, tell you how many how many people I've talked to in recent days who say we just have to really focus on innovation but there's not necessarily a strategy um, behind doing that right yeah. It's a great idea. Everybody wants to do it, but are they really dedicating the time and energy to it? And you know that that that's where I think, unfortunately, most universities the answer is no, they're not. And so you know stuff kind of gets floated up, and then nothing ever happens, right? And so that's this you know constant process of lots of great ideas and not a lot of you know follow through and commitment to them. Yeah, exactly. Now, and that's that kind of my my next question really was from where you sit, what you've seen, what what gets in the way for leaders. Um, I wanted to ask you about the faculty, not because I think the faculty get in the way. I mean, I've seen faculty be really, and at, at my institution, our faculty have been incredibly creative and innovative. Um, but I know that's not always the case. So any thoughts about what what you do see getting in the way, especially now? Yeah, I mean, you know, look, I'll start with the thing that, that it's going to sound really simple that that probably gets in the way the most is just uh, thinking inside of our current box of what higher ed has always been and being beholden to a lot of sacred cows that, you know, if you really, you know, step back, you're like, I'll give you an example. You know, universities have largely been in the business of degrees, right? You know, associate degree, bachelor degree, master's degree, PhD, we're in the business of degrees. The universities that are growing most rapidly right now, and if you look specifically within divisions or departments that are growing rapidly, some of the fastest growing um, uh, businesses within higher ed that are also heavily connected to the mission of higher ed are in non-degree education, right? Industry recognized credentials, boot camps, shorter term training programs that are designed in partnership with employers. 
And, you know, I have to say, there's just a lot of universities that just kind of go, well, that's not what we do. Mm -hmm. That said, right, that's where, you know, if you say, hey, you know, do we want to serve uh, if we're a public institution? Do we want to do we want to you know, serve the, the, the folks in our state who, who need to you know, get upskilled and reskilled? If you say yes to that, then a lot of those answers are going to be non degree based educational answers. And so that's just one of those things. It's like a mindset like, oh, well, we don't do that. No, no, no. That's going to be a major part of higher ed going forward. And if higher ed doesn't seize that opportunity, you're going to see all kinds of other partners that are going to go do it, you know, including, you know, major employers. They're just going to build their own educational training programs and um, and essentially, you know, outsource uh, higher ed in a way that, you know, won't be with higher ed partners. But I, I'm on the I'm on the more optimistic side of this and saying that you know, higher ed institutions that move in that direction, right? They have an opportunity to really make a significant contribution to the mission of, of getting people to their goals in life, right? And, uh, and also, quite frankly, uh, diversifying its revenue source and, and building a much more sustainable business model as a result. For sure, yeah. And no, and, and we are seeing uh, many institutions begin to step up in this regard. But, it, you know, again, I'm reminded about how in your, your earlier comments about leadership and how it really does start with having um, visionary leaders, visionary leadership who have the courage and the, um, they can see the future in that regard and they're willing to move their institutions beyond that internal, um, internal mindset. we learned anything from the rapid deep dive into online learning that happened this spring at our college campuses around the world, it is this. High quality, effective remote learning requires a lot more than just the technology. If you want to create rich and robust remote learning experiences, it starts with understanding how people learn and how to design learning environments and how best to use technological innovation to bring about these kinds of experiences. Institutions of all types and sizes are now looking for digital learning professionals who know how to use learning and curricular design principles, technological tools and innovation, and analytics to create robust and rich learning experiences for their students. This is the future of learning, and the future is now. The Bay Path University newly launched Master of Science in Learning Design and Technology was created for just this purpose. The degree prepares professionals for what Inside Higher Ed recently called Higher Ed's hottest career field. In addition to learning about all of the breakthroughs in this new teaching and learning field, you will also gain hands-on experience designing innovative learning projects for real-time college classes and faculty. Upon graduation, you'll be highly marketable and ready to join this exciting new career field. The program is entirely online and can be completed in less than two years. For more information, visit the Bay Path University website at baypath.edu LDT. Applications are now being accepted for the October start. If you want to design the future of learning, take the next step. Visit our website today, baypath.edu slash LDT.
talk with a lot of university leaders around the country. Um, so I imagine you're hearing a great deal about people, what their, um, their plans for the fall, the difficulty of planning in the midst of so much uncertainty. You know that there have been a flurry of plans now released um, and many of them are um, <laughs> nuanced. I love the language. I actually like reading these because um, <laughs> you know, there, there's yeah. almost every one that I've read has, you know, has been beautifully nuanced in terms of this is what we say we're going to do now, but it could all change, you know, uh, right. on a dime. So do you have any predictions for what you think um, is going to happen in the fall. And I'm curious what you're telling leaders who are asking for your opinion about how to best prepare for a post-pandemic future. Right. Well, I'll address the question of the fall uh, in just a second. You know, the, the thing I'm most worried about right now, Melissa, based on the conversations I've had with, you know, a lot of the college presidents I work with or those that I've just had interactions with is that, you know, leaders are burning out. Um, and, and, you know, like we, we came off this incredibly intense period of a disrupted spring calendar, right? Uh, all the hurdles involved with that, you know, now, you know, you're, you're basically trying to do the impossible, which is plan for a year that, that, you know, has to take into account a billion different contingencies, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and boy, this would be made a lot easier if the U.S. was going in the right direction with COVID. I mean, we're, we're actually going in the exact wrong direction right now with, you know, all-time high yesterday of, almost 65,000 new cases reported. Um, and as you know, there's just great variability by state. So if I'm an institution in states that just, you know, spiking cases, and I just read a report about 50 hospitals at capacity in Florida, right? Like it, this is just, um, it's an almost impossible curveball that higher ed leaders are having to deal with. And by the way, you layer in all the other major things that leaders are dealing with right now, very important priorities the Black Lives Matter movement, right, which yep, yep. higher ed leaders have, have embraced more so than pretty much any other institutional leaders. But of course, in doing so, um, you know, there, you, you know, you've got constituencies pulling you from every direction, uh, you know, donors who are going to stop donating if you take the Confederate name off the building and people, you know, threatening the opposite if you don't. And I mean, you know, these are these are things that consume an enormous amount of energy by leaders and they're all important things to deal with, right? Like, so how do you, you know, how do you say, oh, I don't have time for this or that when they're all just really important? So I'm very worried that, you know, leaders in general and especially higher ed leaders are quickly going to burn out if we if we don't encourage them to take care of themselves, right? And that's everything from, I know I sound silly when I say this, but, you know, getting enough sleep and, you know, exercising and eating right and taking time off where you're actually unplugging so I'll, I'll park that there as a, as a big message for all of us to look out for one another. But to your question about the fall, I've done the same thing as you. You know, I've, I've tried to read as many of these reopening plans uh, as possible. None of them are, are the same. There's a few similarities in the plans. But even if I look at like the regularity of testing, you know, Cornell is calling for testing every five days and Harvard every three days and others, it's like vague and not determined. And you know, like we, there is just no consistency in the reopening plans. Um, and so I have, I have great worries that the actual logistics of what these institutions are thinking about trying to do are going to be pretty near impossible to pull off in, in actuality. Um, you know, that aside, 
you know, we've got, you know, now pressures to reopen schools, to reopen universities, very clear pressures being indicated by the administration right now, especially with this latest guidance from ICE this week on international students. And anyway, you know, what, what, what I'm worried about is that, you know, higher ed is going to spend so much time dealing with the contingencies of this coming year that we're going to lose sight of, you know, the long game, meaning beyond this year. And, and so, what, what I think, you know, what, what you, leaders should be spending more time doing are thinking about um, how do we use this moment to make really difficult, transformative decisions? And I was actually heartened to see in Inside Higher Ed this morning, the new survey they put out of chief business officers, uh, the, 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 you know, 47 percent of chief business officers uh, say that they, they, they think that their institution should use this opportunity, opportunity, quote unquote, right, um, to to make difficult, transformative decisions. And there's a lot of those, like think academic calendar, think trying to have shorter degrees. You can think online and hybrid mix. You know, here's an innovative one. Why not have international students be online in the fall and spring and come every summer when you've got more housing availability? And you're right, like yeah. these are just, there, there's, there's a dozen or more examples of what I would call major transformative opportunities out there, but I don't know that we're going to get to them because we're just going to invest so much time and energy in these contingencies. And and by the way, financially, uh, we're going to be running on fumes. A lot of institutions are going to be running on fumes by the end of this semester, let alone the end of the spring semester. So I do not envy university leaders having to go through this. I have great empathy for what uh, they're dealing with. And I'm certainly, you know, trying to do my part in, uh, you know, trying to help as many of them as I can, but um, there's, it's just not going to be a great year, right? You know, we're, we're, and when I say year, it's not just the fall semester. I think we're, you know, we're going to look at this as a disruption that the entire academic year is going to be, you know, influenced. And um, so, you know, that, that's just the new reality for all of us, I think. Mm, yeah, no, in, indeed. So your advice to leaders would be one, take care of yourselves first and foremost. That's right. And each other. Second, balance the short term with the long term view and in your thinking about what you're doing. Um, and I saw that same report, by the way, the um, the business officers. It was striking, um, and I agree with you that there's there's encouragement there in terms of the opportunity that this moment that this moment provides. Um, so, yeah. as you are uh, as as so as leaders are thinking to the future. Um, and thinking post-pandemic and how to ready their institutions for whatever is going to come three to five years down the road. Um, do you have any, and I know you're, you're really creative, so do you have any hot ideas or, um, you know, trans, you used the word transformational. So transformational ideas that um, you would encourage folks to maybe consider? Yeah, look, I think I think there's a number and there's, you know, different flavors or derivatives of each of these ideas. Right. So, um, you know, I mentioned the notion of just, you know, the simple idea. We've always thought about the international student market as come in the fall and spring, you know, go home in the summer. Right. You can do. I think there's an opportunity. There's a market out there for saying, you know, we're going to offer online fall and spring and you can spend every summer here. By the way, if you do that and it's a year long program, fall, spring, summer, right, fall, spring, summer you can now create three-year bachelor's degrees, which makes us much more competitive with UK institutions because if we're in the global market for international students, right, 
we've yeah. got four year bachelor's degrees, they've got three, right? And and so that you know that that's an example where there's certainly going to be a market for that kind of an option out there. By the way, that option is probably going to be appealing to some domestic students. Why? Because you can probably make the degree less expensive, right? Mm -hmm. So instead of living on campus in the fall and spring, maybe you come to campus in the summer. Housing rates are probably going to be lower because you've got more availability. Most of the dorms are vacant, etc. So I, I just think, you know, these examples of online and ground hybrid, um, there's just a lot of ways to run with it. You think about the executive MBAs that years ago shifted to online with like two weeks a year as a, an immersion experience, right? I think you're going to start to see those kinds of things on the bachelor's degree level, right, for traditional age students. Um, and it's going to be driven by the convenience of being able to do it from home, maybe being able to work while I'm doing it. Um, and maybe, you know, an institution offers a differentiated price. So if you do the bachelor's degree here at the university, it's X. If you do it online with the summer option or the two weeks a year option, it's it's X minus 20 percent. Right now, all of a sudden, you know, you're you're catering to different archetypes in the educational marketplace. And, you know, that that option of online hybrid isn't going to appeal to everybody, but there will be a market that takes that up. And then you know, the other the other thing I've been talking a lot about lately is what I call an evergreen degree. And it's a way to kind of blend the traditional way we think of higher ed, a degree, with a non-traditional futuristic opportunity of students always enrolled, right? You know, this idea of lifelong learning that we all have embedded in our mission statements, but haven't really figured out how to do. <laughs> and so, you know, the idea here is, I use the example of an MBA program, you know, I started an evergreen MBA program with the intention of getting my traditional MBA, but I, I plan to remain enrolled in the program throughout my career, right? So I, I might get my MBA along the way, but I continue to take a couple courses every year that are part of a pedagogically designed program. I'm part of a cohort, right? If the price point is right, my employer will probably support that. So I'm just making this up. If this was a three to $5,000 a year type tuition, that falls within the guidelines of many employers' tuition reimbursement dollar figures. So, there, you know, these are examples of the things, Melissa, that are out there. And, um, and then, you know, I mentioned earlier the expansion of, you know, we're not just in the degree business, industry-recognized credentials, right, custom programs uh, for, you know, for, for employer partners that we work with. So I just think there's, there's, you know, there's a long list of opportunities, but it really does require carving out members of your team Right. Naming that function, naming it as a, you know, whatever you call it, an innovation committee uh, where it, it, you know, it lives as somebody's job. It lives as a function and not just, a, you know, a, you know, a, a sporadic idea that comes up from time to time. Mm, boy, I love I love all those ideas. You know, the um, the evergreen degree speaks to what uh, many have now been talking about, that institutions need to reframe the way they 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 think about their relationship with their students from, you know, just a four year kind of in and out to nurturing a relationship that uh, extends over the course of the lifetime. And that is, you know, so you're building lifelong loyalty, um, which has all kinds of benefits to the institution, not just educationally, but That's from right. an owner um, fundraising perspective, um, you know, to, all kinds of other. Um, and, you know, on the credential innovation, um, it strikes me that it wouldn't be that difficult uh, to 
to really do this. You know, you, you could e fairly easily add credentials. I mean, imagine if a, a, a baccalaureate um, granting institution decided to require that every student who graduates has a credential um, yep. that is taken in addition to whatever the, the degree is. Um, that, that would be a huge selling point for that institution to, to, pay, to parents and students, I would imagine. Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, it's, it's probably the most um, uh, common project that I'm engaged with right now at Kaplan, which is helping universities launch what, what, I've, what I've called credigree programs. And credigree yeah. is just a blend of the word credential and degree. And the, and the vision is very simple. You just articulated it. You know, every student comes, they get a bachelor's degree, but they also leave with an industry recognized credentials. And you think about the marketability of a graduate who has, you know, they, they maybe they have their bachelor's degree in English yeah. uh, and they're also a certified ethical hacker, right? A, a, a you know, <laughs> popular designation in cybersecurity. That kind of graduate, um, and I've got market research on it actually, uh, they're, they're four times more likely to be hired than somebody who has just an English degree and three times more likely to be hired than somebody who has a bachelor's degree in cybersecurity. So think about that for a minute. We're still talking about an English major, right? Who yeah. got their bachelor's in English, but they add this, you know, industry recognized credential to it. And all of a sudden they're four times more attractive than the English major alone and three times more attractive than one of the fast growing, you know, uh, you know, bachelor's degree programs in, in cybersecurity. So I think it also in that tells you a really interesting thing employers very much value the liberal arts, right? But they also wanna see graduates with specific skills. And if they yeah. can find one that has both, that's kind of like a home run in the grand scheme of things. So, so yes, I think there's a bright future for credigrees in higher ed. I think that, you know, it goes to my rele you know, relevance renaissance point that we started with, which is, you know, you, you wanna prove that your graduates are work ready. Well, I actually think one of the fastest and most effective ways to get to that point is, you know, what you said, everybody leaves with a bachelor's degree and an industry credential. Boom, it's right there on their resume. It's a really clear thing to articulate. And uh, and that contributes greatly to the relevance of that person's education. Yeah, no, that's a really powerful, powerful thought. And it's not hard to implement. That's the, the beauty of it. Um, that's right. Yeah. I mean, look, because, you know, you can fit the the time that a student pursues the industry recognized credential into the what I call the nooks and crannies of the academic calendar. Right. They can yep, do it yep. over a summer. They can do it in a J term. It could be embedded in a course where there's, you know, a semester class where there's a relevant connection between the course and, you know, the credential. There's just a lot of ways to do it. And, and these things, by the way, they're not that expensive to get. So you know, a lot of these, um, you know, preparation programs for industry recognized credentials are, I mean, they vary, but, you know, on average, $750, may, maybe a thousand bucks for some of the more involved ones, et cetera. But, you know, there are things that are actually affordable to weave into the grand scheme of tuition or the overall cost of higher ed. So yeah, to your point, it's, it's not, it's not a hard task to figure out. Yeah. Are there, what are some of the top, you talked about the certified ethical hacker. I love that one. I love the name of it. Are there, are there some others that are uh, hot, you know, based on the research that you all do and that you've seen that yeah. people should, could, should consider? Right. Well, so, you know, you say, okay, what are the fastest growing areas, right? So certainly in areas like data science, right? Data scientists as a job description has been the top job in America for three straight years. Um, 
So, you know, anything in that realm, cybersecurity, certainly cloud computing, like those are way up on the list. But then there's just the always relevant ones, right? Like project management type designations. Um, you know, those, you know, that that's something that could be applied in, you know, really any industry, uh, certainly financial services. So you think about things like getting a series seven or, you know, uh, CFA or CFP, right? There's a lot of really high value credentials in the financial services, wealth management space. So, you know, that's going to shift over time, obviously. Uh, you know, some of these things where, you know, cloud computing wasn't even on the list five years ago. And now, you know, it's one of the most, pre you know, th those credentials are some of the most prevalent out there. So you certainly have to think about regional workforce alignment. Um, and that's getting easier because you've got great data sets like a burning glass or an MC that, you know, can really help you understand what the what the job uh, needs are within your region and where there's a gap between, you know, the jobs posted and the talent ready to fill it. So, you know, you certainly have to kind of keep abreast of those kinds of things. But like I said, there's the what I'll call the classics like project management that are going to be there. And quite frankly, I think that's where we are with data science. I think every college graduate should leave with basic data literacy capabilities and skills. Um, and those who come out with some more sophisticated data science type skills. I mean, you know, there's no reason why a college graduate who uh, is sophisticated in, in data science couldn't get, you know, a six figure job out of graduation. That's how much demand there is for really bright people who have, uh, you know, data science skills and know how of the various software tools that are involved in in that work. Yep. Yep. Indeed. Wow. OK, well, that's that is that's great advice for leaders that are looking how and where to jump in to this. So uh, let me end by taking you back to your um, previous work at Gallup, where you oversaw the release of several really excellent reports, including my favorite, which was the Great Jobs, Great Lives, um, the 2014 Gallup Purdue Index Report, which is a comprehensive nationally representative study of U.S. college grads that focus on their long-term outcomes in work and life. And you, you referenced this briefly earlier in our conversation, but could you just give a high-level um, description of what it is that you found that you believe um, was particularly impactful? And and I'm curious, again, going back to COVID, whether you think COVID and what we're experiencing right now will have any impact on those findings in terms of the outcomes and how we think about the outcomes of college for life satisfaction and meaning. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, that that research was um, just absolutely fascinating to be part of. I mean, it was the largest representative study of college graduates in U.S. history. Uh, really with a focus on, you know, trying to understand the, the long-term outcomes of a college degree and what aspects of college are what I call the, you know, the magic ingredients, the secret sauce. You know, we, you know when, when higher ed works well, it is as transformative uh, as anything in the world. Uh, that said, it doesn't always work well for everybody and not everybody completes. And, you know, so we, we know some of the problems out there, but back to the study, you know, there were there were really just a handful of things, Melissa, that a student either experienced or didn't experience during college that have a profound relationship with their uh, overall work engagement later and their overall well-being later. 
And I touched on a couple of these, right? I mentioned things like a long-term project that took a semester or more to complete or right. a job or an internship where I applied what I was learning in the classroom. It wasn't just I had a job. The important question was that there was a connection between that job and the learning you were doing in the more traditional academic sense. But it was also a couple other major things like the professors cared about me as a, as a person. I had a mentor who encouraged my goals and dreams. You know, that one is a strongly worded question. Those graduates who strongly agreed to it, it, it more than doubles their odds of being engaged in their work and thriving in their well-being throughout their lifetime. Not one year out, not five years out, literally across their lifetime. And so here's what I worry about, right? It, the, the research was so clear on what the secret sauce of higher ed is. But when you look at the percentages of graduates who are nailing those, it's it's small percentages. Less than a third hit the mark on long term project or, or an internship where they applied what they were learning. I mentioned only two out of 10 hit the hit the mark on having a mentor. Uh, only 27 percent said the professors cared about them as a person. So we've got a long way to go in terms of room for improvement. And here's what I worry about in the midst of COVID. Right. We're we're trying to cut costs. We're trying to do all kinds of things that you know, we, we might actually lose sight of the, you know, the, 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 the magic in the middle. And I've always said to schools, you know, the magic is not about how much money you have. It's about the culture. It's about what you value. It's about what you measure. So, you know, an institution that, you know, to this day, I mean, I haven't been at Gallup now for a couple of years, but at the point I left, all the universities that I was involved with doing an alumni outcome, uh, you know, study for, the one that, you know, takes the cake on had a mentor who encouraged my goals and dreams. They're three times higher than the national average. And it's an adult only online university by the name of Western Governors University. Now, you, you know, you on the surface, everybody's like shocked when I say that, like, how could an online adult university be crushing it on this metric of mentoring? But the second you realize what they're doing, you know, they have built a model of professional advisors that are matched from the point of matriculation to graduation, one-to-one -one with a student, and they connect weekly. Now, when I say connect, it's on Google, you know, Hangout, it's on Skype, whatever medium they want to connect with, but they're connecting weekly. My point about this is, you know, you, you know, one, never judge a book by its cover, but two, if we can focus on that secret sauce of mentorship, professors caring, long-term projects, these are things that don't require money. They take time, right? They take focus and intentionality. But this is the kind of stuff that I worry that we'll lose sight of because we'll say, well, we'll have the excuse of, oh, we can't, we can't afford to do that. My answer is you can't afford not to. Yeah, boy, indeed. And that is a, um, that is a great, great uh, thought to, to end on, you know, it, it, it makes me it, it, it makes me think about the uh, the challenge increasingly that I think students are or that institutions are going to have in terms of differentiating themselves going forward. And as we're cutting costs and dealing with constrained resources and what you're suggesting is that we cannot afford to lose sight of I love the magic in the middle. <laughs> um, and and that's that speaks to quality. That speaks sure to, does. yeah, it speaks to, and those, those institutions that can hold on to that magic in the middle are going to um, be able to provide uh, that quality education that is going to have incredible outcomes for students going forward. So 
Um, thank you for that. That is a great thought to close on. Um, and Brandon, thank you for your time, your insights. Boy, we could, I could, I could talk to you all day. I, uh, <laughs> so. Well, yeah, I appreciate your great questions. It's been a fun, uh, very fun discussion, and uh, and you know, happy to happy to do it again. Uh, you know, when it makes sense. So, thank you very much for for inviting me to be part of it. Melissa Morris-Olson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You. My thanks to our production assistants, Madeline Olson and Marcy Moore. Join me next week for another Ingenious You conversation with Richard H. Bailey. As principal of the higher ed marketing firm RHB, and with more than 30 years of nonprofit marketing experience, Rick and his team have helped hundreds of institutions find and tell their unique stories. According to Rick, it has never been more important than right now, in the midst of this pandemic, for colleges and universities to get really clear about their one and only market position and value. He suggests that now, more than ever, we need to be willing to imagine voraciously, to consider possibilities we might have ignored previously, to dream boldly about that next big thing for our institutions. Join us for this uplifting conversation with a highly creative thinker who will challenge you to think differently about the opportunities that may be right in front of you. For now, thank you for listening. Be well and stay strong.